0: Hi, I'm Hannah Fahim, the producer and host of Tales from the Opside. Before I tell today's tale, I want to thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, I'd appreciate it if you can leave a review on iTunes or your main podcasting app. If you pause the podcast right now, I'll wait for you to leave the review and be happy to pick things up after pressing play. Now, what you've been waiting for. Listening to tales from the upside. I'm your host, Annie. Error cannot find the recording device. Are you still recording? I'm your host, Annie Fahim. What the? Okay, fine. Man, bugs. Where would we be without them? Imagine a bug-free world. It would be glorious, but I would be out of the job. The reality is, bugs are a fact of life. They are born out of the ever-increasing complexity of our world. They can be annoying, like Excel giving you the wrong number when doing simple arithmetic. That was a real thing. Or as catastrophic as causing the 2003 Northeastern blackout, do you remember that? Or even more catastrophic, as causing loss of life. The infamous Boeing 737 MAX plane crashes were partially attributed to software bugs. Sometimes bugs can be so elusive that it takes weeks to hunt down and can even turn into a personal vendetta. The following tale takes place in late November 2016. It was an unusually warm but wet and blustery November afternoon, and I had just come back from a lunch break. Man, I need a new umbrella. Look what the wind did to mine. When one of our team members pointed to an error message that had just been reported. Content is not a valid SSH key. Our system made use of a centralized error reporting tool called Sentry, which collates and categorizes errors to ease troubleshooting. I recognize this error. Isn't this from our app? I guess someone entered an invalid SSH key. SSH keys are like personal identification cards that, when used, allow secured communications with Linux systems. Our team had developed a web application that allows our clients to manage their SSH keys and map them to systems they need access to. This application was written in Python, which is a popular programming language, and utilized a framework called Django. You can think of a programming language as the raw materials one can use to build a house, such as wood or nails. And a framework is a set of pre-built items, such as a a door, a window, or cabinets. Doesn't that just mean our system is working? Let's take a look at the actual key. Our team had already done so. The key in question was perfectly valid. Mm, That's odd. It's got to be some user error. Did you try and replicate the problem? One of the most important steps in troubleshooting is being able to isolate and replicate an issue at will. Doing so allows you to reliably test a fix. The team did try and replicate many times, but were not able to reproduce the issue. Maybe it was a cosmic bit flip. That's actually a real thing. A cosmic ray striking a circuit board at just the right place in time can cause a zero to turn to a one, or vice versa, which can wreak havoc on a computer. <sighs> Obviously, I'm joking. I don't actually think that was it. Only half-joking. Okay, let's take a look and see what impact this has on our clients. The team had already looked into it, the client would have received an error message on their screen. Alright, not a great experience, but also not too harmful. Let's check and see if they re-entered the key after that error. It looked like the client tried again, and it went through the second time around. Well, okay, doesn't seem like there's much to do. Let's just restart the system and see if it happens again. So we did. We didn't think anything more of it. Little did we know at the time, we were about to embark on a multi-week bug hunting quest. Six days had passed. The weather was even warmer, but still very wet. Morning, folks. Yes, yes, I know. I still need a new umbrella. But if you hold it like this, it can double as a poncho. The team was unimpressed with my joke and instead directed my attention to our error system. Invalid SSH key again? It was back, this time complaining about a completely different SSH key. I don't understand. This key is also perfectly valid. Let's take a look at the actual code. The team had already located the piece of code responsible for this error. It was only eight lines long. Okay, it looks like it's doing some simple key validation. That didn't seem out of the ordinary, except for the fact that this code hadn't been touched in over two years. I don't get it, this code must have been run hundreds of thousands of times over the last two years and it breaks twice in one week? Why is this breaking? One of the team members highlighted a line from this code block with their mouse, drawing my attention to it. What am I looking at here? The line being highlighted was an error handler, which is meant to be run in case of an error being produced previously. That looks like a generic error handler. Isn't that bad practice? It is. When an error is produced, a generic error handler will swallow it up and generate an unhelpful message such as invalid key. In tech, we often say errors are thrown, a program through an error. This is an apt description. You can think of a program as a fighter plane flying over the ocean performing complex maneuvers. If a malfunction occurs or the plane is shot down, the program will often write down what happened and throw it out the window before crashing. The hope is that some other part of the program will catch this error and do something about it. If nothing catches this error, it will usually end up in the lap of the end user. In our case, however, we were catching this error. But instead of reading the message written on the paper and taking appropriate action, we instead launched our own error that simply said something went wrong, and that is what ended up on the user's screen. So, we don't actually know what the real error is? Why would you folks do that? Who wrote this? Was it you? Smiling, the team switched to another browser tab where GitHub was loaded. GitHub is a collaborative source code repository used by many tech companies. The team used an aptly named feature called Blame to show exactly who added that line and when. Oh, okay. So what do we do? Wait, what did it say? Oh, nothing. It's okay. No, seriously. What did it say? It doesn't matter. Alright? It's not important to the story. You know, I can just look this up myself. It was me. Okay? I wrote that code. Yep, you did. You know this is embarrassing for both of us, right? Not really, I'm over it. Well, how nice for you. This piece of code is what is called founder code. Founder code has particularly unique characteristics when compared to normal code. It is usually written by the founders of a company in its early days and can be described as a duct tape mess of code snippets copied from online sources like Stack Overflow, tutorials, user manuals, and examples. It's all in the name of speed to market versus taking the time to make it maintainable. What is the point of writing beautiful code if no one uses your product? Founder code is fairly important in the early days of a startup. Except for the fact that I wrote this well after our early days. Yeah, well, back to the story. So, okay, let's modify that line of code and add some extra logging in case this happens again. The team had already done so. Man, you guys are always a step ahead of me. I like it. Let's deploy it and restart things. Another six days went by. It was now December. That last bout of warm weather was gone. Winter was coming. Morning, everyone. It's getting nippy out there. I could tell from the looks on their faces that the air was back. Okay, what do we got? Did that extra logging work? It did, and what it revealed was strange. Argument one must be a string, not Unicode? We now knew what the real air was, but it didn't add up. Argument one? is it? argument one talking about that string? The greater than I? It was. But that's not Unicode. I I think we need to sidebar for a minute. Sidebar guy? I knew you'd interrupt me. This is going to be a bit technical, so be forewarned. The error that we saw was being generated from an internal Python module called struct using the unpack function. Struct is essentially a function that converts data, specifically from binary data to internal Python data. Now that's not too important to the story, What is important is how this piece of code is used. This function expects you to pass in two pieces of info in order to perform the conversion. The first is what is called a format string, which is just a fancy way of saying data type. The second is the actual data you want to convert. So you tell it, I want to convert this piece of data and it's of type X. We were specifying the type as greater than I, What that means is unimportant. Just know that it's always the same, meaning it's fixed, and it's been there for over two years. And it definitely was a string. Back to you. Thanks. Are we good, man? Back to the story. I'm very confused. Python must be confused. It must really be complaining about the key. The key was the second piece of data passed, and was the part that changed each time and inputted by our customers. How could it be complaining, sometimes, about the part that always stayed the same, but never about the part that always changed? I think it's time for another analogy. What we were seeing was truly baffling, and I want you listeners to feel what we felt. Imagine you're given several pieces of text in some foreign language that you need to translate. Nowadays, Google Translate is smart enough to detect the language for you. But back in the early days, you had to tell it what the language was before it could translate. Let's say that you know the text is Italian, so you click on the drop-down box with the list of languages and select Italian. You paste the first piece of text and click translate. It works, you get to translation. Then you paste the second piece of text and click translate. This time you get an error. Naturally you would think it had something to do with what you pasted. Except that's not what we were seeing. It wasn't complaining about the text at all, it was complaining about the language selection not that the text you pasted wasn't in Italian, but that Italian itself was invalid. And it's not like you typed out Italian or misspelled it. You simply selected it from the list of available options, and it came back saying that the selection was invalid. You then click translate again without changing anything, and this time it works. Confused? Great. So are we. Honestly, something must be getting corrupted. To compound matters, our team revealed that the situation was even stranger. That same piece of code was actually used on two separate occasions. The first time is when a user enters their key. It's then used for validation. The second time is when our app goes to copy it to the systems. Are you telling me the same key and code works the first time when it validates, then breaks the second time when it goes to apply? It's the same key and code. One plus one is sometimes two. Can you check the logs? The team already had the logs open, we were a bit surprised at what we saw. Wow, when this thing breaks, it really breaks. There are over a hundred errors right here. One plus one is two until it's suddenly not, sometimes. Take a look at these entries. Everything is fine until it starts erroring. Then the same key sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. At that moment, we all realized the scope of the problem was much larger. It wasn't just about annoying errors being displayed to clients. Because it can work the first time when a client enters their key, but then break later when our system goes to apply? This meant that the keys may not show up on a client's system when it should. Even worse, if a key is meant to be revoked, say when an employee leaves, it may remain on the systems. It was now a security issue. Can you do me a favor? Can you run a count of the total number of errors versus the total number of requests? I have a hunch. The team quickly ran some command line foo, and the answer revealed that when it did break, approximately 10 to 15% of the calls would fail. 10 to 15%. I wonder if it has something to do with one of the workers. We have eight workers, right? In order to handle large amounts of traffic, modern web applications actually run multiple copies of itself. We had eight copies running, what are called workers. If one of those workers decided to break, that would mean one in eight calls would fail. One in eight is 12.5%, which is right in between 10 to 15 I bet you a new umbrella one of those eight workers is getting corrupted and responsible for all of this. Nobody took this bet. Let's add some logging to see if we can uniquely identify the worker. The team was... Let me guess. You're already on it. More logging added, application restarted, and more waiting. A full week went by. It was the first snow of the season. Guys, I just saw the error happen again. Right? Morning. How was your weekend? Can you please check our logging? Our assumption was confirmed. I knew it. It's all coming from one worker. Somebody owes me a new umbrella. No one took that bet, remember? Whatever. Okay, so what do we do with this information? Suggestions? We sat together trying to plan our next steps. Wild theories were being thrown around, none really fitting the picture. Wait, look at your screen. While we brainstormed, a screen was monitoring the stream of errors. It's not erring anymore. For whatever reason, the errors stopped on their own, without any action. What is happening here? Does our app have some sort of self-healing powers? That would have been nice. In every previous incident, we had taken some action and restarted things. This time, we had left it in a broken state as we planned our next steps. Maybe we're going about this the wrong way. Maybe it's not one event or key, but a sequence of events that causes this corruption. We were reaching. We added more logging to be able to validate this hypothesis, restarted, and waited. Six more days. It was getting close to Christmas, and the weather was cold. (laughs) morning. What? It's back, isn't it? Why is it always about a week apart? Same story. A single worker going nuts? We stood by, doing absolutely nothing, waiting to see if it's self-healed. There it goes, self-healed again, didn't it? With our recently added logs, we set out to analyze if it was true that some particular sequence causes the worker to go off the rails. Okay, show me what you got. The results were not promising. I see Worker 1, which is perfectly functional, process nearly the same sequence of requests as Worker 3, which is broken. And I can see Worker 2 processed more requests than Worker 3, so it has nothing to do with the number of requests either. It's important to point out that during this entire bug hunt, we were not able to replicate this issue once. We were able to take the key that it was complaining about and try it ourselves many, many times, and each time it would work. Folks, I'm out of ideas. Maybe we should just rewrite this thing. It's only 8 lines. The team actually had planned for this. A fully rewritten version was prepared and tested. It was dramatically simplified and made no use of the problematic line that had been haunting us these last few weeks. Amazing. Uh, but don't apply it just yet. Let's, let's just keep it in our back pockets. Wait. <laughs> let's talk about what just happened. We had spent almost a full month chasing this elusive bug. We hit a wall and decided to rewrite those eight lines. From a business perspective, we should have simply applied this and put an end to this fiasco. However, sitting there empty-handed, not knowing what was really going on, was eating me up inside. I justified to the team that continuing with this hunt was paramount. Because we truly did not understand it, the bug could affect other systems. Maybe even cause a more serious event such as data loss or lead to a security breach. I did not really believe any of this. Business Hany and Technohany were at odds with each other. Worlds were colliding. And in this case, Technohany won. Four days went by. It was now December 23rd. The temperature had warmed up again and our team was working remotely as we typically did this time of year. Happy Festivus, everyone. It was back. Okay, that's it. Everyone, please get on video chat. I have an announcement to make. I want everyone to drop what they're doing and focus all efforts on this bug. For those who weren't involved before, please talk to someone who was to get up to speed. I want fresh eyes on the problem. Someone then asked if we should just simply merge the new code. That's an excellent question. Any other questions? No? Okay, let's get to work. I was determined to solve this problem one way or the other, perhaps foolishly. How did this ever work? Someone asked. Yeah, exactly. I don't get it either. This was an important question. No, I mean, how is it possible that this ever worked? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's incredible what a fresh set of eyes on a problem can bring. No, you're not hearing me. Look, how did this ever work? Someone pointed to the very first line in the file containing our bizarro code. From future import Unicode literals? What? Was this always there? I think it's time for another sidebar. sidebar. Yes, I know. So, to understand how this is significant, we need a quick lesson in strings. In the tech world, strings are just a fancy name for text. When computers first came around, all text was in English, using something called ASCII. However, we live in a multicultural world, and ASCII was simply not sufficient for all the different languages out there. So, a new standard was invented, called Unicode, which was able to handle all the different languages and characters, including the newly founded language of emojis. Like most standards, inventing them is easy, adopting them is the hard part. I think there's an XKCD comic about this. The world of computers is a big hodgepodge of ASCII and Unicode. If you recall, the original error near the beginning of the story was argument one must be string, not Unicode. We thought Python was not drugs because we clearly were specifying a string, not Unicode. However, this first line, from future import Unicode literals, changes all of that. Adding this line means every single string is actually Unicode. We added that line a few weeks prior to this bug hunt starting in an effort to be more Unicode friendly. Now the error makes sense. Okay, back to you. Sure. So, everything is Unicode? How did this ever work? Listening is a skill. For the very first time, we were able to replicate the problem. Adding that line that converts strings to Unicode, we were able to reproduce the same error. Is it weird that I'm excited to get an error? But yet again, things didn't add up. Based on what we're seeing here, this should always fail, but somehow it works most of the time. We spent the next hour staring at our code, hoping to see the obvious flaw, until... Wait, I think I figured it out. Show me. What was shown to me can only be described as some black magic. Okay, so I give it Unicode, which it doesn't like, and it gives me an error. Then I give it what it does like, a string, and it works, as it should. Then I go back and give it Unicode. It should give me an error, but it actually works this time? What is going on? Is there some weird cache inside Python? The answer had to be found deep inside the source code of Python itself. Python being open source means the actual programming language code is available to be viewed online. We found the code for struct and simply searched for the word cache. And there it is. There is a cache. Man, that was lucky. It looks like there's actually a bug report. What? It's true. This was actually a known issue. Son of a... The whole time? The bug report described exactly what we were seeing, and it was fixed in the very next version of Python. I can't believe all this time it was actually a known bug in Python. While the bug was known, its manifestation was very elusive, so don't be too hard on yourself. Yeah, I know, but still. The fix was almost insultingly simple. Simply force it to always be a string. So, let me put the puzzle pieces together for you. Certainly. This part's going to be a bit technical again, so be forewarned. So, it was mentioned earlier that we made use of a framework called Django. Django itself makes use of this struct unpack function in several places. When our app first starts up, some code inside Django calls the same function as we do and initializes the cache with a string. This happens eight times, once for each worker. Then requests start flowing in and all is well. Eventually the cache expires on one of these workers and under the right circumstances our Unicode version gets called next and the worker throws that error. Now the worker's in a broken state then, after some time passes and more requests get processed, some other code in Django calls struct-unpack with a string, the cache is refreshed again, and our Unicode requests start succeeding again because of the Python bug. This is the self-healing powers we observed. Well, cybar guy, why was it always a week or so that passes before we saw that error between restarts? Our guess is statistically somewhere between four to seven days is the amount of time it takes for the cache to expire on a worker and then have our code get called next. There's a really good essay by a man named Richard Cook called How Complex Systems Fail. It's not very long, but it is on point. I would recommend giving the essay a read, it's applicable to any field. The premise of the essay is complex systems are intrinsically hazardous. Because they are complex, there exist many failure points and bugs at different layers. But a single bug alone is not enough to cause a failure. Failures occur when multiple bugs are triggered under the right circumstances. In our case, it wasn't enough that Python had a bug. It was the combination of this bug, plus our use of Django, plus our insertion of that line that converts strings to Unicode, plus a bad error handler, plus an expiring cache, all combined with regular customer traffic that led to this hunt. Cook explains that humans spend a lot of time defending against such failures, and for the most part, we're pretty good at it and can even manage to reduce the frequency of failures. But they can never be eliminated. At the beginning, I made reference to the 2003 Northeastern blackout. Did you know that the event started with a single power line being taken out of service somewhere in Ohio? One single power line. But how could that cause such a massive cascading blackout? Well... Here's what happened. That power line was not properly marked as out of service. An operator noticed, turned off the monitoring system, fixed the issue, but forgot to turn it back on and went to lunch. Some other power plants in the area went offline due to unrelated issues. This caused load to increase on the other power lines. When load goes up, power lines get very hot and sag. It didn't help that this August day was particularly hot and there was no wind to help cool things. A sagging line came in contact with a tree branch which was untrimmed. This caused an overload and automatic shutdown. Now there were fewer lines needing to carry the same load. This was a big problem and should have raised a lot of alarms. There just happened to also be a bug in the power management system that prevented alarms from going off. Meanwhile, more lines sagged, coming to contact with more branches which ended up cascading across the eastern seaboard and forced me to cook all my frozen meat at once. This event is a prime example of what Richard Cook talks about in his essay. It wasn't a single event that caused this blackout, but rather many of them, all under the right circumstances. To this day, I still shake my head whenever I think about that bug hunt. We wasted a lot of time initially because we had programmed a generic error handler. You mean you did. That was not best practice. Our initial thought was, this should never break. Instead, we should have avoided trying to be so clever and let the program break if it did, which would have revealed the real error message right away and saved us a lot of time. Personally, I succumbed to the sunk cost fallacy. It's a cognitive bias whereby you feel justified to continue spending time and money on a problem simply because you spent so much time already. I was hell-bent on solving this problem one way or the other. When that rewritten piece of code was done, the hunt should have ended there. But then again, who wants to hear a tale of a bug not found? If you're enjoying the series, be sure to subscribe with your favorite podcasting app. And if you want to do me a personal favor and spread the word, please give my show a five star rating review and tell your friends to subscribe. You can contact me with feedback or relevant questions or even ideas via Stack.io. That is S-T-A-C-K.io. I'm Henny Fahim and this is Tales from the Offside.